0: World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim Munson.
1: Hey, welcome to the World War II Project with Kim Munson. I am so excited to have on the line with me retired Army General Chris Petty. Uh, He has... uh, started a new business called Battle Digest, where he is actually dissecting some of the major battles throughout history. And we want to talk to him about the the um, the strategy in the South Pacific for this segment. And then in the next two segments, we will be talking with Lloyd Bowen, who uh, actually served in New Guinea. So, General Petty, it is just great to have you on the line
2: here. Ken, it's great to be with you.
1: So tell us a little bit about you. Uh, you are a retired Army General, right?
2: Right. Uh, I served 31 years, graduated from West Point as a young, young man at the age of 21, and uh, went into aviation, did a lot of time in aviation with Hueys and Blackhawks, and uh, eventually commanded a battalion of aviation in the, in the surge in Iraq, which is kind of the high point of an officer's career, I think. And then I held several assignments, both active duty and in the Colorado National Guard, on staffs. Um, probably highlight would be commanding the NATO headquarters in Bosnia uh, for a year, and that was that was pretty exciting as a young general officer to get thrown into that kind of uh, geopolitical space. But uh, I ended up at Northcom as the deputy director of operations, and since I sort of grew up in Colorado, this is where I retired and. And I uh, haven't looked back. I enjoyed every moment. Of, well, I didn't enjoy every moment of it, but it was a fantastic and rewarding and uh, a great way to spend the majority of my life. So honored yeah. to have served our country. Well, and, um, and
1: thank you. Thank you for yeah, serving our country. Uh, appreciate it. Many times I say we stand on the shoulders of giants all the way from the, the patriots of the Revolutionary War to, you know, the young men and women that are serving now and and it's because of you guys that we get to live as free people and um we take it for granted sometimes and so it's important that we do this show so that we talk about talk about history and what has happened with that before we jump into the strategy of the South Pacific in World War II general petty tell us about battle digest it is absolutely fascinating uh, we've had some conversations about some of the key battles and explain to our listeners what Battle Digest is and how they can get it.
2: Okay. Great. I, uh, during my time in service, I was one of those officers that believed in gathering my younger leaders around in a classroom and teaching them about the lessons of war uh, because they're so relevant today and the threads are so uh, continuous throughout history. Whether you're talking about Alexander the Great or or Patton, there really flows some constant lessons. So, so I did that, but it took a lot of time to prepare these classes. But I thought it was worth it. So I figured, after going through this exercise multiple times in my career, when I retired, I, I said there's got to be an easier way. So what I did was I create essentially a trifold publication with uh, it's only three thousand words, and it covers significant battles of history and and probably the most important piece of it is the last section on the foldout is called lessons learned and so you can look through the lens of a specific battle and understand for instance you know how Wellington beat Napoleon at Waterloo because of these things and these things are the timeless lessons of warfare and they really apply across the ages so So that's it in a nutshell, and um, I built it for the military. It's it's obviously available to anybody. Uh, The civilians are loving it, the ones who like history. Um, And all you have to do is go to battledigest.com. It's all laid out right there, and it's pretty easy.
1: Well, you know, I think it's so important that families have conversations about big ideas at the dinner table. And this is something that I see with Battle Digest, that you could have the kids read it, and, of course, everybody in the family read it and then talk about uh, talk about the battle and the lessons learned. Because it's not only in warfare. Many of those lessons that people learn, I mean, they're applicable to everyday life, I think, as well. And yeah. uh, I think that they, yeah. they help us, I think, be better. And uh, so that is battledigest.com. I highly recommend it. Uh, we've gone through some of the battles, and I'm looking forward to some of the others as we continue on. But today... The South Pacific, the Pacific Theater in World War II, first of all, it is astonishing that the United States was able to fight on two fronts. There was the European front uh, against Hitler in Mm -hmm. Nazism, and then over in the the Pacific – the Japanese. So yep. set this up
2: for us, Chris. Yeah, this was, as you mentioned, this was America's first truly two-front war. I mean, you could, you can make arguments about the War of 1812 and all that, but nothing on this scale um, in terms of two fronts. And it was a massive, massive mobilization, national undertaking. But let me try to, I find it very helpful to sort of, that as you talk to veterans, and I know you do a great job of that, and they bring out some of their stories, some of the things that we don't talk about all, all the time is the larger context of of a conflict or a battle. And every battle rests in a larger context, which is quite helpful to putting together, at least mentally, you know, when you hear about... Iwo Jima, and you hear about Tarawa or Midway, you know, they're just isolated battles, but they're part of a chain of events and a strategy and a context that I think is really, really important to understand. So what I'm going to try to do for you and your listeners in just a little bit of time is sort of, in broad brush fashion, kind of lay out the strategic context of the World War II in the Pacific. Does okay. that sound okay? That sounds awesome. Okay, I think, I think it starts with understanding just briefly the interwar period in the United States. Um, if, you real, if you think about after World War I, you know, it was the war to end all wars, and then we hit the Great Depression. There was very much of an isolationist sentiment in the country, and we were very wary of large standing armies, and all those things were churning together. But in the late 30s, America was kind of waking up to the threat of Hitler and the threat of Japan. But I'll tell you, the interwar period left a very small military, the, the army is a great example since really back then it was the army and the navy. The army had 188,000 active duty troops in 1939. So here we are in the, what you would think today is the precipice of world war with 188,000 troops in the army. So. It's interesting just to understand where we came from in a rapid fashion across several years to meet this threat. So our military was organized for homeland defense, it was shaped by the Monroe Doctrine, and we we had not built an expeditionary uh, navy or army, but things changed rather quickly. Um, after Japan started getting aggressive, they invaded China in 1937. Germany annexed Austria in 1938 and seized Czechoslovakia in 39. So Americans were waking up to this threat pretty quickly. Um, but after Germany invaded Poland in 1939, France and Britain declared war. So that kind of was a big wake-up call for America and, and President Roosevelt to start doing some serious war planning. Um, and, the, and starting to change the military and the mobilization planning to a, um, a nationalization, a mobilization kind of strategy. So this all starts a conversation between Roosevelt and Churchill and the joint staff in Washington about objectives and strategy, and this is where you, they came up with the Germany First strategy, which which uh, a lot of people are familiar with. The overall concept uh, of World War II for America was, okay, we agree Germany's the bigger, more powerful enemy, they can do the most damage the quickest, so, and and by the way, Roosevelt was a big believer in not letting Britain fail. And that was a big part of the Germany First strategy. He thought it was just critical to Western civilization. So
1: And Chris, so, during this time, yeah. was was Britain being bombed yet during this time?
2: Yes, they were. Okay. They were. In fact, they were fighting the famous Battle of Britain in the Air, and all those things were already happening. So in the summer of 1941, things changed even more when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, because the Soviet Union was supposed to be that big counterbalance to Nazi Germany. And if if Hitler could take over the Soviet Union, then it was a matter of time until he owned the, uh, you know, the Eurasian continent, essentially, and could then either isolate Britain and consolidate his gains or launch the invasion of Britain and game over.
1: So So, quick question on that, though, Chris, there are some that say that that was very unwise of Hitler to open up that second front.
2: Very, I mean, in retrospect, it was very unwise, and he was clearly setting himself up for strategic overextension, which which happened. And, you know, it really, really sapped the strength of his army and set up the conditions, by the way, for us to successfully do the Normandy invasion and all those things. But, yes, I mean, hit, uh, history has judged Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union as a major strategic mistake. Okay. Um, but if he could have pulled it off, and as you know, he got very, very close to pulling it off, it would have been a game changer. So at the time, that got that got the Roosevelt administration very serious about developing an actual uh, expeditionary war plan to deploy forces into Europe. That resulted in the Rainbow Five Plan. You've probably heard of the Rainbow Plans at this point in time, but the Rainbow Five Plan was the basis for the entire war. Uh, And so it is the ultimate backdrop, I guess, for a discussion on the Pacific. And, And the Rainbow Five Plan, after the Soviets invaded Hitler and it became urgent and pretty much inevitable that we were going to play a major role on the European continent, In World War II, the objectives of Rainbow Five were wear down Germany by bombing, blockades, and limited attacks while mobilizing U.S. strength for an eventual invasion. Meanwhile, contain Japan with air and sea power using China's unlimited manpower and Soviet-Siberian divisions, of all things. And once Germany is defeated, turn all that combat power against Japan. That was the basis of the Rainbow 5 plan, which really is the underlayment of the entire World War II strategy. So does that make sense? It does. Okay, so that's kind of a that's, that's kind of the, the backbone or the underlayment of the entire thing. So against this backdrop, um, then you have Pearl Harbor, and Pearl Harbor is a massive game changer for a lot of reasons. But before I go into Pearl Harbor, it's important to look at Japan's strategy. So, Japan sees what's going on with Hitler and Europe, and the British being consumed, and the Soviets being consumed, and so Japan enters the war with very limited objectives. They weren't they weren't uh, after world domination like it seemed Hitler was. Uh, they were looking for regional dominance in Southeast Asia, mainly to control resources. They never expected um, all-out war against the United States. But to accomplish their plan, they believed that they had to take out American power in the Pacific. And American power in the Pacific at the time was concentrated in two places. U.S. Pacific Fleet in Hawaii and the Far East Air Force in the Philippines. So the plan was to realize their limited war aims of regional dominance they, they would plan a sudden and simultaneous attack on these two locations. Then they would drive south. And I probably should just explain quickly because not everyone knows the map of, of the Southeast, Southeast Asia area that we're going to talk about. So I'm just going to explain it, visual picture for your listeners.
1: Great.
2: You have Japan. Everyone could probably picture that on a map. <laughs> Excuse me. Below Japan... You have Taiwan, close to the China mainland. Then you have the Philippines. And then south of the Philippines, you have a whole arc of island chains that are basically from Borneo to the, to the west through the Dutch Indies, down New Guinea, and then you have the Solomon Islands, which, by the way, Guadalcanal is at the southeastern tip of that. And then below that, you have Australia. So that is and then way off to the way off to the northeast is Hawaii <coughs> and to its west is Midway. If you draw a line straight up, you're at the Aleutian Island chain coming off Alaska, which just for perspective, the Aleutian Islands are closer to Japan than uh, for instance, Guadalcanal. And so so it plays a part in the Japanese strategy here. So With that little quick um, description of of the geography, the plan was to take out American power in the Pacific and drive south through the Malaysian Peninsula, Dutch East Indies, Philippines, Wake, and Guam, basically, and then establish a defensive perimeter that they could hold. So that was kind of their plan, knowing that the U.S. was going to be more and more committed into Europe, and might be distracted enough without after that initial strike to sort of allow them to let these things happen. Following so far,
1: yeah, I'm following so far. And just a quick note: my great uncle yes. served in the Aleutian Islands. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. yeah. So
2: well, that definitely plays a part in this drama.
1: Uh huh. Okay.
2: So, with that as a Japanese strategy, that they had to execute their first step was their surprise attacks. So Pearl Harbor was a Fantastically brilliant tactical uh, move by the Japanese. So they positioned six carriers 200 miles north of Oahu, launching 350 aircraft. Total surprise, strategic, operational, tactical surprise. They sunk eight battleships. This is 7 December 1941. They sunk eight battleships, destroyed 170 aircraft, damaged 102 more. 3,400 casualties, U.S. casualties, 2,400 of those were service members. They only lost 49 aircraft and five midget submarines. But fortunately, our three carriers were out at the time doing other missions. So tactically, it was a fantastic success. Strategically, it was an absolute disaster, miscalculation disaster for the Japanese. And here's why. After that attack, American will was absolutely coalesced, and we were all in. And mm-hmm. not only did it lean us quickly towards war in Germany, but it, we were all in on hitting back and defeating Japan. And the Japanese never understood how the Americans could be so all in after this attack, which for them was kind of a tactical thing. But that was that was the critical era of the war for Japan, no question about it, and that's and and that set the stage for the long, hard fight in the Pacific. So you're with me so far? I am. Yep. Okay. So now, the stage is all set for the Pacific, the, the World War II in the Pacific. So now the Japanese were unstoppable in the first weeks after Pearl Harbor because they basically taken out our assets in the Pacific. Well, um, and
1: and within was it 24 hours? I didn't realize why they went to the Philippines until you just said this. But that's because we had uh, our air power there. So wasn't it like within like 24 or 48 hours they had taken the Philippines as well after glad, Pearl Harbor?
2: Yep, glad you said that. It was it was uh, essentially simultaneous. The the reason people get confused on the on the date and think it's the next day is because of the international date line. Um, but actually, it was basically the same day. Okay. They attacked both at the same day. But then they were on a roll. They were, uh, well, you know, just three weeks after Pearl Harbor, they were invading the Philippines in the famous story of MacArthur, I shall return, mm-hmm. you know, and the, and the general Wainwright, trying to hold out on the Bataan peninsula, you know, retreating into the mountains and trying to defend, but he had to surrender, you know, a few months later. So you know, the Japanese were just rolling along on their operational plan and doing quite well. British outposts were falling, uh, American outposts were falling. And so, you know, it seemed like nothing could stop the Japanese. Now, we did have some, you know, after consolidating, we started to hit back. Bombers from were launched from Australia to interfere with some of this Japanese buildup. Along this, these, you know, what I would say is just this large island chain, I guess, from the Philippines on down to the Solomons. Just to make it simple, mm-hmm. um, we started hitting back. Some carrier task forces were launched. You know, again, interdiction primarily. You, you the famous Doolittle raid was mm-hmm. was done during this time for American morale more than anything, and just to show the Japanese mm-hmm. we could reach out and touch them. But the main effort. Was very quickly by the United States to secure a line of communication to Australia. So our first efforts, besides trying to stop the Japanese with anything we had, was to secure a line of communication to Australia so that we could start establishing some counteroffensive and basing capability. Now during that that transition time, we did have some we did have some victories, and you're familiar probably with the uh, Battle of Coral Sea and the Battle of Midway. Mm-hmm. Um, Coral Sea was famous because it was the first carrier-on-carrier uh, fight you know in the history of warfare, and, and the Americans won it. So that, that hurt the Japanese ability to stop us connecting to Australia because Coral Sea is right off the northeast coast of Australia. But the more important battle was Midway, and Midway... Uh, is closer to to you know Pearl Harbor to Hawaii. It's I mean I think the reason it's called Midway is it's midway between the United States and China. Um, but uh, that was a real setback for the Japanese because at Midway they lost a lot of their 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 naval power in the Pacific, and so that opened up opportunities for us to build that line of communication and and start. Moving material and supplies into that, you know, Southeast Island chain, so to speak, to start our counterattack. So Midway was actually, in some people's mind, a you know, turning point of the Pacific War. So from there, <clears throat> excuse me, from there, the strategy, the, the core strategy, after we basically built that line of communication with um, with Australia was to launch a coordinated, mutually supporting drive along two axes of advance uh, and converging on an area that's been characterized as the Taiwan-Luzon-China Coast Triangle. And the reason that's significant is because it's it's it dominates shipping lanes, um, but it also is close enough to Japan to start striking Japan itself. And so... So the strategy was to coordinate these two, two axes of advance, these two mutually supporting um, efforts in the Pacific. Now, General MacArthur would push up from the Solomon Islands and Australia, and take eventually take Central or South Philippines, whichever would play out to start establishing that last staging base to you know, make the last assault on Japan and start and start bombing the mainland or bombing mainland Japan. While at the same time Admiral Nimitz would push from the west to the Gilbert and Marshall Islands and the Marianas and establish bases for B twenty nines to start hitting Japan. So you had these two, you know, four star commanders, basically one kind of marching over land and island hopping from uh, initial uh, toehold at Guadalcanal and moving northwest up up the Solomons and New Guinea and into the Philippines, and that was MacArthur's job. While Admiral Nimitz is pushing west through the Marshalls and the Mariana Islands to put pressure and to come at that northern Philippine area uh, from the from the east to the west. So, can you picture that?
1: I, I got it. Yes.
2: So these are the two primary campaigns that are now going on in the, in the Pacific, which puts in perspective some of, these, some of these battles you hear about all the time. Um, so I, I mentioned Guadalcanal. So that was, that was MacArthur's first essentially, uh, I guess, launching his first significant uh, attack as we transitioned to the offense was in Guadalcanal. And, uh, and at the same time, or, you know, Nimitz, um, is doing the same time. And he's, 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 he sees his Tarawa on November of 43, and then moves into the Marshall Islands and then turns into the Carolines. And he's doing this amphibious warfare with the Marine Corps. This is the famous, this is the famous stretch of developing amphibious warfare in the Marine Corps during this, during this, um, you know, phase of the attack. Mm -hmm. And then he's taken Saipan and Guam by the following spring. So by September of 1944, MacArthur and Nimitz are both converging on the Philippines, which sort of culminates in the battle of Leyte Gulf in October of 44. Mm So, so they are, the Japanese have to react to these two different offensives coming from two different directions and coordinated between them by the joint staff essentially with resourcing and all and it really creates problems for the japanese who are slowly being squeezed and they are they are a bit overextended and so this is the you know island hopping slugfest mm-hmm. campaigns of the of the world war 2 pacific theater Wow. And we'll, yeah so i mean that's kind of how all these battles play into the you know into the overall uh, uh dance or you know uh strategy and then once they're in control of the Philippines which was not easy i mean these are these are famous battles Leyte gulf and then and then you know making the philippines capitulate didn't didn't happen overnight and once in control of the philippines then it was on north to okinawa which i know you've heard of right which puts the United States in the position to strike the inland Sea of Japan. So even shipping inside of Japan um, can be targeted now. <clears throat> and then that puts them in a position for the final assault. So then in May of 45, Germany's defeated. So resources can start coming from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Troops can start moving from the Atlantic to the Pacific, to buttress this thing even more. And so by June and July of 45, uh, the Allies are hitting hard. I mean, and Japan is now powerless to stop it. So you have aircraft uh, hitting shipping. You have naval guns even hitting their coastlines. You have submarines sinking their ships. And then everything set for an invasion on 1 November 1945. And then, of course, you know, the decision was made to drop atomic bombs on... 6 August and 9 August and uh, after the 9 August drop on Nagasaki Japan sued for peace the next day I mean they were absolutely defeated And so, you know, I mean that, in a nutshell that's kind of the Pacific the context of the of World War 2 in the Pacific theater
1: Well I I really ap- appreciate that and I've interviewed so many of the World War 2 veterans said that dropping the atomic bomb probably saved their mm-hmm. lives and the lives of many Americans and Japanese. So, yeah. General Chris P- uh, Petty, this was just absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it.
2: Well, it's my pleasure, Kim. Hope to talk to you soon.
1: Sounds great. And, again, that is battledigest.com if you want more information on that. So thanks so much, Chris. Okay. Hey, before we go to break, Hooters is the spot to be this summer. Enjoy Hooters Beachworthy Seafood items like amazing fish tacos, delicious snow crab legs, and mouth watering buffalo shrimp. And Hooters has plenty of ice cold beer options to help cool you down this summer. And I love this they have nine items for nine bucks, 11 to 3 p.m., Monday through Friday. You can choose from nine delicious menu items such as fish and shrimp tacos, salads, cheeseburger, Philly cheesesteak, and of course, their boneless wings. So that's great. Dine in for that and all the other great food. You can stop by and get uh, your Hooters wings to go, or you can have them delivered right to your front door. More information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com. Let them know that you know the AmeriChicks. And this is Kim Munson. We will be right back with World War II veteran Lloyd Bowen. Welcome to the AmeriChicks World War II project. I'm Kim Munson. I am thrilled to have in studio with me World War II veteran Lloyd Bowen. Lloyd it's great to have you here. Thank you. Well this show precipitated from a trip uh, back in 2016 that I took with a group with the Denver Police Police Activities League that accompanied four D-Day veterans back to Normandy for the D-Day celebrations and returned back realizing we need to capture these stories. Each of these stories are unique and they're important and so, Lloyd, it's really great to have you here. Thank you. Okay, so we want to hear about your story. You're a World War II veteran, and I know you're not supposed to ask a woman what her age is, but can I ask you what your age is? Ninety-seven. Ninety-seven years old. So what? Uh, where did you serve in World War II? Which theater?
3: Oh, South Pacific.
1: South Pacific. And how old were you when you went into the service? Eighteen. Eighteen. So let's see, that, that means you were in in the early part of the war then, right? Yes. Okay. And what were your responsibilities?
3: Well, when I first went in, I uh, went into uh, to a field artillery band.
1: Okay. What is that exactly?
3: Well, it was a field artillery, oh, it was the 186 Field Artillery. See, what could I say?
1: So, did you accompany? The one hundred eighty sixth in in their endeavors.
3: Yes, seems like so long ago.
1: Well, it it was a so a field artillery band. Now the field ar- artillery. I, I'm assuming that I mean aren't they going into combat?
3: Oh, uh, at that time we weren't. Okay. No, we were. Let's see, I might have been in Vermont at that time.
1: Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about where did you grow up, Lloyd.
3: I grew up in a place called Freeport, Long Island.
1: How did you come to be in the service?
3: Well, all my friends were being conscripted for a year, and I didn't want to be left behind. So uh, I joined uh, this uh, organization that was going to be federalized. So that's how it all started.
1: Wait, Do you remember what year that was, Lloyd?
3: 1941, I
1: think. 1941, okay. So was that before... Pearl Harbor had been bombed, or was that after?
3: That was uh, it. Was right after Pearl Harbor was right after it. Yeah. Okay. Because we were sitting on our foot lockers, preparing to go up to Canada, and it happened.
1: Okay, so you were already in. The, was it the army that you were yes. in? Yes. So you were already in the army. What went through your mind when you heard that Pearl Harbor had been bombed?
3: Well, we wanted to get back at the enemy. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we wanted.
1: Yeah. And so you were, at that time, you were prepared to go to Canada. Everything changed after Pearl Harbor, right? Yes. So what happened then?
3: Well, let's see. They sent us down to, uh, I think they sent us to Virginia to uh, go through maneuver exercises.
1: Maneuvers. Was that also where you did your basic training or had you already done your basic training?
3: I actually never had it.
1: You never had it? Never had it. Okay, they sent you to maneuvers. But you mentioned you were with the field artillery band. So, did you entertain the troops? Is that what your responsibility was? Yes. Okay. What kind of music did you play? Everything. What was your favorite song?
3: I think our favorite was uh, a medley of service songs.
1: Were you ever near combat? Yes. Well, let's let's continue on. You said you were in Virginia on maneuvers. What were those maneuvers like, Lloyd?
3: Well, they put you out in the field, and uh, you'd be probably 20 miles from the nearest town. And uh, we would set up our own uh, perimeter so that we were always protecting ourselves. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, I'm intrigued, though, being part of the band and also being in combat. How did that happen?
3: Well, (laughs) uh, I got sent overseas. And I ended up ended up in a place called Hollandia, Dutch New Guinea.
1: Okay. And what happened there?
3: <laughs> what happened? We uh, fought our way up to Manila.
1: You fought your way up to Manila. I'm. You know what? I'm trying to figure this out. Being part. What instrument did you play in the band?
3: Oh, I was a trumpet player.
1: Okay, so you're a trumpet player, but yet you're also in combat. I, I explain that to me. How does that work?
3: Well you uh, you don't pick what you want okay you just do what you have to do when you're there
1: okay so you had the responsibilities of being part of the band but you were also part of the artillery am i getting that correct yes okay so you said you ended up in dutch new guinea uh let's back up just a little bit regarding the south pacific december 7th 1941 pearl harbor was Bombed. Yeah. Within 24 48 hours, the Japanese had attacked the Philippines as well. Right, and then the Bataan Death March occurred. Were you aware of the Bataan Death March at all?
3: Not at that particular time. Not at
1: that time. Okay. When did you find out about that?
3: Early on. That's all I could say.
1: Were you surprised when you heard about the cruelty of that march?
3: Yes and no, because we knew that they were. Bad people. We took whatever came.
1: Okay. So you end up at Olandia in Dutch New Guinea, and you fought your way to Manila. How how long did that take, Lloyd?
3: Well, I can't put a time on it. The important thing is that MacArthur wanted to return. So that's what really got us up there.
1: Because he had left the Philippines, and he said, I will return. What was it like day-to-day after you had landed in Dutch New Guinea? What was a day like?
3: At that time, we were maintaining the airstrip. Okay. Maintaining the airstrip we'd taken from the Japanese. So that was our basic mission.
1: Okay. And that was so the bombers could do their missions, correct? Yeah. And and in maintaining the airstrip, what did, what was that exactly? Just taking care of it? or?
3: Well, yeah, because... If the planes were going to land, they had to have something concrete to land on. Mm-hmm. That was our duty.
1: Do you remember which bombers landed there primarily?
3: 25s and uh, mostly 25s. Okay,
1: Lloyd, I actually got to do something really cool within the last few weeks. The Collins Foundation brought in some B-17s, some B-24s, some B-25s. Um, P-51 and P-40s up at the Loveland Airport. And I got to ride on one of the B-25s. And I think in my mind, I thought it was a lot bigger than it was. And it clearly was made for very nimble young men uh, you you, <laughs> to be able to move around the plane. And uh, the B-25 was what Doolittle used for his mission to bomb Tokyo, if I remember right. Do you recall that? Yeah. What do you remember about Doolittle's mission uh, of bombing Tokyo? What can you tell us about that? Because it was just a few months after Pearl Harbor.
3: Yeah. Well, and, we were delighted, of course. Not much more I can say. Yeah.
1: Well, it was quite a mission, these B-25s that uh, Jimmy Doolittle and his his group uh, they took them off of aircraft carriers, and which had never, to my knowledge, been done before. And unfortunately, they were seen a couple of hundred miles before they had hoped to start the mission by a Japanese trawler. So they had to leave early. So it was a it was quite a mission, and but it was really a shot in the arm for the Americans when they realized that we had actually bombed Tokyo. Correct? Yes. So uh, as you're fighting your way up. From Dutch New Guinea to Manila is there any k- kind of personal stories that you can remember that you would you know want to share with our listeners about that
3: it's just day-to-day stuff mm-hmm you don't think about anything except what you have to do now
1: mm-hmm did you hear from your family much how did you c- communicate with your family back in the United States
3: we didn't very very much but all I can say about
1: that you got a few letters from time to time. What about your colleagues? Who were some of your friends that you served with? Just people that you would
3: known all the time.
1: Okay.
3: Okay. I wish I could be more explicit, but I can't.
1: That's, o- that's okay. Um, what about the accommodations when you were, was it jungles in Dutch New Guinea? Was it primarily jungle there? Yes. So what was the accommodations like? Were you in tents?
3: No, you were, uh, you were on the
1: ground. Okay. Did you have any outs- any covering?
3: Well, you did what you could with your pup tent.
1: And that was it? That's it. What about mosquitoes?
3: Plenty of them. Yeah.
1: Do you recall, uh, my understanding is, is malaria and some of those things yeah, were... Yeah, they
3: had to take Adabrin tablets.
1: Okay. And I heard that Adabrin would actually sometimes turn your skin yellow. Is that yes. true? Yes. Okay, but it helped yes. protect you against the malaria. True. How many battles were you involved in as you were moving from New Guinea up to Manila, or was it day to day skirmishes, or or what was that like?
3: Um, no, it wasn't day to day. It just worked your way up. That's all I can say.
1: Okay. And when you worked your way up, was that was it skirmishes with the Japanese, and you'd take a little. You know, a little territory and then continue on? Is that, was, is that what it was like, Lloyd? Well,
3: we'd, we'd get territory, but we were never actually fighting them at that time.
1: Okay, so you just were moving on. Yes. Uh, did you ever actually meet the enemy? Did I? hmm No. Okay.
3: Not until we got to Manila.
1: And now, when you were on this part of your service, and you mentioned you also were part of the band, I mean, did you... Did you actually uh, place in the evenings sometimes for the troops during oh, that time? No, no. No, okay. It, that would have been at a different time then. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about Manila. When you got to Manila, what did you see?
3: <laughs> what did I see? I'll tell you what I saw right away. I saw MacArthur's Brewery. It was the only building that hadn't been bombed out.
1: <laughs> really?
3: Yeah, he saved it for himself.
1: Huh? What'd you think about that?
3: You don't want to hear me tell you.
1: I probably <laughs> Okay, when you got to Manila, how were the people that were living there? Were they did they have food? What did you see?
3: Um, we weren't thinking too much about them because we were thinking about ourselves. Mhm. But they uh let's see how do I put this. There was one one family that uh said to a couple of us We'll go to the like the guest house,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and you guys can have the house. So things weren't as bad as they could be.
1: Uh-huh. You know what, Lloyd Bowen, let's go to break. This is Kim Munson and the World War II Project. We're talking with Lloyd Bowen, 97-year-old World War II veteran. He was with the 186th Field Artillery. Hey, before we go to break, I have on the line with me Jim Ruse. He is a retired Marine And Jim, welcome.
0: Well, thank you. Good to be with you. And thanks for letting me chat about our Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation.
1: Well, you've got something uh, coming up, very exciting. But first of all, tell us a bit more about the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation. Uh,
0: The Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation is the oldest uh, of the military uh, scholarship programs. Uh, It was started in 1962. And uh, since 1962, we have issued tens of thousands of um, awards, uh, scholarship awards, totaling over $130 million. Wow. So, and uh, and it's geared towards the children of Marines and those corpsmen who work with Marines. So um, anyone that uh, w- was a Marine was honorably discharged, or a Navy corpsman who worked with Marines, their children are eligible for these scholarships. And the scholarships are substantial. We're talking anywhere from 30000 to $40,000 guaranteed over um, a four-year period. And it doesn't have to be consecutive four years, but anywhere over um, the life of a person. And it doesn't matter what their age is. We have a Marine whose daughter uh, divorced with two children, um, and in her 30s went back to college, and the Marine Corps Scholarship uh, helped her. So we help uh, no matter what age, no matter what gender, um, we help. Well, and
1: Jim Ruse, it sounds like such important work, but to be able to continue this, you need to raise money, right?
0: Everything exactly. Everything is uh, done through donations. There are no government funds involved. The Marine Corps itself, while very helpful, does not provide any um, money so that uh, it all comes through donations. And so anything that uh, anybody can give is always appreciated. And that's why we're having this, uh, this fundraiser, this golf outing at the Inverness in South Denver, is to help raise money for this scholarship. We have at present uh, um, a little bit over 50 Colorado students in school. Uh, nationwide, we've got uh, hundreds of kids going to school. And our, right now our budget nationwide is $7.7 million, and it all goes towards scholarships. So uh, it uh, is a good program. It's, it's a, a solid program.
1: Well, and this golf uh, tournament, uh, is actually you get to do two things. You get to help with this scholarship foundation, but also you can get out and meet some new people and uh, hit the golf ball around. So, again, give us the details on that, Jim Roos.
0: Okay. It is uh, August 6th at Inverness Hotel and and Golf Resort um, in South Denver. It is um, uh, on August 6th. And um, we are looking for, for active people that like to golf, uh, that uh, would like to help out either by sponsoring a golfer um, or by having their own foursome or just by donating money. And um, some of the, the, the people that are donating, they will just buy like a foursome and then they'll have Marines or or Corpsmen or Army or Air Force uh, veterans uh, join in. We uh, especially want to help with those uh, 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 military, uh, Marines and corpsmen especially, uh, that were injured in the war. Um, their children actually have more, uh, they have a little bit more of a benefit than, uh, say, if you were to, uh, did your service and, and got out with an honorable discharge. Um, but uh, anybody that could help, uh, and I can give you, ins- you know, instructions on how to get uh um, online and, and look this up, but uh, yeah, we're looking for people that really want to help out, and if they love the golf, even better.
1: Okay, and where can they find that information, Jim Ruse?
0: Okay, the best way would be online at uh, the initials for the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation, MCSF dot org, and when you get there, look up events because it'll be right on the homepage. Uh, look up events, and then it'll show. The, um, uh, the one of several golf and other events ours is the Colorado golf event and then once you click on that it'll come to contributions and then whatever you can help with would be greatly appreciated
1: Okay, well very good. Jim Roos. thank you so much for your good work on this important cause and again that website is mcsf.org That's mcsf.org
0: Thanks so much Semper Fidelis
1: Hey, welcome to the World War II Project with Kim Munson. I am thrilled to be talking with Lloyd Bowen. Uh, he was 18 years old when he went into the service in World War II. He's 97 now. When's your birthday? June 8. June 8. Happy recent birthday. All right. <laughs> now, you were uh, a member of the 106th, 186th Field Artillery Band. You grew up in Vermont. And we've gotten to the point in, in the last segment where you've entered Manila. Uh, what what was some of the things that you remember about Manila? For example, the smell. What do you remember?
3: Well, when we were uh, in the harbor, there were uh, a lot of uh, Japanese that uh, had been uh, captured that were there. And uh, they were like uh, in a captured situation. Mm-hmm. It seems to me like. They didn't smell too good. I don't know for sure.
1: Okay. What kind of food did you eat when you were in Manila? What?
3: Um just trying to think back. Regular army Russians. nothing
1: out of the ordinary. Okay. So you didn't eat like local food or anything? No. Okay. And your son had mentioned that there was a story about a horse. Oh, well,
3: see, the Japanese would take everything. So uh, what they did, they took some of these beautiful horses, up into the mountains and stashed them up there till I could bring them back. And uh, one night, my friend and I were sitting on a curb, and all of a sudden, here came this magnificent horse. guy went out of his mind seeing this wonderful. And that's when we found out about what the local people had done, taking these horses up into the mountains so the Japanese couldn't get to them. But, oh, my God, they were so pretty. It was something to see.
1: Probably surprised you as you were sitting on the curb there. Oh, yes. Now, you played the trumpet, and uh, your uh, your son Tom had mentioned something about early on when you got into the service, uh, you and buglers. Tell us that story, Lloyd.
3: Oh, they sent me to this uh, outfit to uh, train buglers, and uh, mm-hmm. I don't think I ever did actually train any of them.
1: Lloyd, are there other stories that you... Want to make sure that our listeners uh, know about your story, your your time in the service, and you realize that we were fighting a really evil foe, and um, you know to try to protect freedom, to try to protect people from oppression. And so, what what did that mean to you exactly as a young man?
3: Hmm. Well, at the time, we just wanted to eliminate the Japanese. That's all I can say.
1: And what about your family? Uh, did you have other siblings that served in the military as well?
3: Just a brother-in-law.
1: Your brother-in-law. Okay. And which branch of service was he in?
3: He was in the Navy. In the Navy. In fact, I saw him on Guadalcanal.
1: You were at Guadalcanal? Tell me about that.
3: <laughs> well, this was pretty good. Um, I'd behaved myself. I'd always been a good boy. I never did anything I wasn't supposed to do. And uh, I heard that my brother-in-law was a naval pilot was on Guadalcanal. So uh, I went to the uh, place where all the airplanes left from, and I found somebody that was going down there, and I bombed a ride down. And I stayed there a couple of weeks. And then I had to face the music and go back. So I went back, and <laughs> the first sergeant said, when you got dumped on us, you didn't want to be here in the first place. So uh, he said, we're uh, opening... Uh, our own little PX kind of thing, one of those thatched roof things.
1: Uh-huh.
3: And uh, said, I'm going to put you in a second command there so I know where you are all the time. <laughs>
1: so. Well, now I find this intriguing. So you, you bummed a ride. So were you AWOL when you did this? Yes. For two weeks? Mm-hmm. For the guy that never got into any trouble, you just decided to go AWOL. Yeah.
3: Okay. That's
1: right. Did you ever find your brother in law? Yes. Okay. Oh,
3: yes. Yeah. We had a good time. In fact, he said something about, uh, would you like to get a drink? I said, yeah. So, of course, the Navy always had everything. And uh, we went up to uh, their little place where they had their drinks, and uh, we had as much as we wanted.
1: And was that quite a bit? Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. Um what else about your holiday with your <laughs> with your brother in law uh, in on Guadacanal?
3: Well, let's see. Oh, I know. Um, we'd gone to sleep that night, that first night, and there was a huge explosion. And we had uh, one of our boats out there, and the Japanese had hit it. Oh my! So it was right nearby. Yeah. It was kind of scary.
1: Well, I would, I would think so. Yeah. But uh, so Guadalcanal happened pretty early in the war, right? The right. the Battle of Guadalcanal. Um, is, what can you share with our listeners about what you know about the Battle of Guadalcanal?
3: Well, I really can't say too much because uh, I was there for a limited time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So when you got back, you s- got back to where you were supposed to be. You said your sergeant wanted to keep an eye on you. And so you opened up a little thatch-roofed PX. Yeah. Now, did you play the trumpet at night there? Oh, no. No? Okay. I'm trying to figure out when you played the trumpet, Lloyd.
3: <laughs> oh, let's uh, see. No, because I was, to begin with, I, I was supposed to be a bugler. Okay. And so uh, when we got off the uh, the, the ship the la- that was landing us, they said, uh, what are you going to do with that? I said, I'm certainly not going to blow it and let the Japanese know where I am. So I dug a hole and I buried it.
1: <laughs> so how did everybody get up in the morning then? <laughs> they just plain got up. They just got up. Yeah. Yeah. Probably bugling in a war zone is not the best idea. No. Now, when you got into the Army, you were in the Army Air Corps, correct? You were an aviator. So to to be a pilot, you they were giving people aptitude tests, correct? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So what happened with yours?
3: I was a cadet, and I flunked out. They had more guys in training than I needed, so they uh, eliminated a lot of people, and I was one of them.
1: So after you were eliminated, what did you do? Is that when you became a bugler?
3: It seems so terribly long ago
1: well it it was sometimes I can't remember yesterday, so for to ask you for something from nineteen forty one I know that's a long time, but eventually you became a bugler, yeah, okay, and is that after you did not become a pilot?
3: Yes, that bugler business was that was something turning to trade other people
1: and when you got into combat, you buried your bugle, huh yes, <laughs> okay, got it so. What is a message that you would like to give to the young people in America today? What would you say to the young people in America today?
3: That you've got the greatest country in the world, and you better do your part to protect it.
1: And what do you think of when you see the American flag?
3: I think that's the most beautiful thing I can look at. That's the first thing you look at when you come back from overseas, see the American flag.
1: And where were you when you... Had heard that pro, uh, that uh, uh, that we had bombed the uh, Japan with the atomic bomb. Do you remember where you were? I'm just
3: trying to think now. I think I think I'm still up in Vermont.
1: And um, regarding dropping the atomic bomb, do you have an opinion about that?
3: Should we not have done it? Mm-hmm. Oh, I definitely think we we needed to do it.
1: My understanding is is that it it saved. Thousands and thousands of American lives and Japanese lives Mm -hmm. by doing that.
3: Probably right. Yeah.
1: So, Lloyd, uh, are there other thoughts that you would like to leave with us, other experiences that you would like to share with our listeners?
3: During the wartime? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You just never prepared for that.
1: When you came home after the war, tell me a little bit about your life after you returned home. What did you do?
3: Oh, when I got back.
1: Did you get married?
3: No, just trying to think what, it seems like a thousand years ago.
1: What, how did you make your living throughout your life? What did you do? Oh, well, I was always uh, a trumpet player. So did you play in a band? Yeah. Okay. Which band?
3: Many different bands.
1: Okay. Did you play professionally? Oh, yes. And um, then eventually you did get married and have children? Yes. How many children did you have?
3: Three. My son.
1: Who's here. Thank you for bringing him over. Yes, definitely. And how did you end up in Colorado?
3: Oh, that's pretty good. Um, I got out of the service. I, end, I ended up out in California. And uh, oh, a guy that I'd been in a service with, another trumpet player, he said, if we ever get a chance, maybe we'll get together and end up in the same band somewhere. So uh, that's what happened. We uh, I got a call to join a band up in Estes Park. So that's what brought me here.
1: Okay. And how long have you lived in Colorado?
3: Oh, my. I've been here a long time. Probably 50 years, I guess. Mm -hmm.
1: Oh, Lloyd Bowen, thank you so much. This has just been awesome. Thank you so much for joining me uh, with my World War II project. I greatly appreciate it. That's all I can do for you. Well, Lloyd Bowen, God bless you, and God bless America.
3: I'll go along with that.
0: Okay. (laughs) Join us next time for the World War II project and your host, the Americhick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.